Hello and welcome to Pale Reflections, a proud member of the Doof Network where we reflect on Wabo's most charmed work as it releases. I'm Ruben Morehouse. I'm Elliot Diebold. And we have some special guests. Guests, introduce yourselves. Matt, Hi. Matt, you go first. Hi, I'm Matt Freeman. Um, I'm from Doof Media and I'm here to talk about Pale. Hi, I'm, I'm Scott Daly and I am also from Doof Media. And I thought we were talking about Ward. No one told me we were talking okay. about Pale. Hold on. Wait, did you, you guys read Pale? Trying right, to Scott? usurp our discussion podcast. Let me just. You let had me just your go, one, okay? Let me just go read this real quick. Hold on. Yeah. Okay. I, I I'm just caught want, up. I just want to preface this by saying that if if you were used to us having insightful takes on things, I apologize in advance <laughs> because I am <laughs> reading this story this as just a person reading a story. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um. So, audience, in case you haven't guessed, this is a special episode. Uh, we're planning to do something like this, not always with Matt and Scott, but just where we have different guests on discussing each arc of the story as it concludes. And this is our first one, discussing Lost for Words, and also the prologue, maybe, a little bit. Um, so, that's what we're here to do. Bit of a bonus thing that we'll do every so often when the arc ends, just to round up the thoughts on the arc as a whole. So, yes, this arc that we're talking about is, uh, well... Lost for Words, but we'll also talk about Blood Run Cold, which of course follows Louise as she follows an injured dog and then kisses a cute boy. Um, and also the experienced Kenneth brochure. Yeah, uh, and then we, you know, then the story moved into the actual story uh, with 1.1, which was from Verona's perspective. Uh, we kind of met her, her friends, and then they all headed off to their special meeting at 530 uh, which was when we flipped into 1.2 and we hopped into Lucy's perspective for the actual awakening ri- ritual, which was, you know, like so much fun. Uh, and then <laughs> after that, we got uh, the notes that Lucy had been taken, uh, taking on all the others in town. Then uh, we went into 1.3 where Avery and the others headed back to the, com- uh, sorry, headed to the Carmine Beast's territory, um, followed by 1.4 where Avery and the others then headed back home and we met Avery's family. Then we got uh, treated to Notes on Practices 1, which featured how to draw the magic circles. And there were so many ways that we learned how to draw circles, and I understand none of them, so hopefully <laughs> hopefully you guys can explain that to me. Uh, but then we moved on to 1.5, where Verona and the others had to speak to John, the dog of war, one of my favorite characters in this book. Um, and then we moved on to 1.6, where Lucy deals with, or fails to deal with, the trauma that she suffered at the hands of the dog of war. And then we also got the really cool uh, flyer and the uh, the app for the it's a really spooky ritual that that ends the the arc. Yes. Um, of course, we then moved into 1.7, where Avery keeps her sight on a bit too much and learns uh, some harsh lessons. And then to make up for it, the trio will get nice and definitely wholesome gifts. Um, and then in 1.8, Verona hangs out with Lucy. Um, you know, Verona's dad is a huge ass, uh, and she decides to forego her humanity. So that's fun. And then, of course, <laughs> the bonus bit there is inventories, which uh, features us just taking a look at what the girls have accrued so far. Yeah, which, of course, led us into the finale of the arc, uh, 1.Z, uh, which followed, you know, Gabriel's very bad night, um, you know, as he failed to keep down his food after partying too hard. Mm-hmm. Yep, <laughs> a pretty apt description of that chapter, I think. Dear Lord. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, arc one is our introductory arc. Um we get, we meet Kenneth, we meet the Kenneteers, we kind of learn a bit more about the rules of this world, and uh, we see how out of depth, uh, out of their depth, these three protagonists really are. So, Scott and Matt, what were your thoughts on our first arc? 
Um, I I really liked it. I'm I'm really into this so far. You know, I think I think I was pretty vocal in my uh, wild bow doing a kind of murder mystery type thing when it happened in Ward, and I won't go any further than that. Um, was super interesting and engaging to me, and so when I heard that was kind of the direction this book was going to go, I was very excited for it. And this arc did not let me down. I think the ways in which it introduces us to this this the core narrative conflict that is the whodunit uh, while also filling us in on these three very interesting and very different characters um, while also kind of slowly introducing us to the world that these people live in the, the magic systems and everything in this world was just done just in a super engaging way and i'm just totally on board for all these characters um i have no idea what's going to happen next i i have no prediction skills left but i'm i'm so there for all of it <laughs> Yeah, I think I would focus as well on the the three the three main characters, right? Because I mean, I've loved all of Wildbow's stories. They have each been, you know, one primary protagonist, one one point of view character, and then a bunch of interlude characters. But this is the first time that Wildbow has tackled something where there are basically three rotating point of view characters, and it's been really cool actually to see how he goes about this. Um, because I've I've kind of always thought that his his interludes. Uh, are are like his strength, or, or I mean, my favorite part of the, my favorite parts of the stories are usually the interludes. I guess I would say so. Having multiple main characters to me is sort of almost like a middle ground between his usual style and it's almost like a story made out of interludes. Um, and I'm really enjoying it so far, and I'm really uh, kind of learning a lot from how he's going about it because uh, one thing that he's able to do is 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 kind of very rapidly trade off between internal and external characterization, meaning, you know, the characterization from the, the character's thoughts and then the characterization of that character as viewed from the outside by the others. Uh, and that's, that's been a cool, uh, a th- cool thing to watch. Yeah. That's such a good point. Yeah. I, I especially loved in 1.8 when, you know, when Verona basically has this first half of that chapter is really dedicated to her kind of checking in on Lucy and trying to kind of be a good friend to Lucy and it's a really interesting way of giving us, you know, we saw inside Lucy's head two chapters ago and we saw what this trauma was doing to her. But then we also see the context of that again through the other characters' heads. It's a really fun way of seeing not just different angles, but also like different and more in-depth uh, explorations of the, the relationships between these characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I I don't want to um, I don't want to fall into my trap of of. Uh, world building is for nerds which i've been accused of of doing (laughs) in the past um even though obviously i i don't think i i actually believe that but my favorite parts of the story so far are just the kind of the mundane interactions between the three girls and Mm -hmm. their families um i think some of the most powerful scenes in the first arc to me are verona you know dealing with her father avery just kind of existing with her family lucy and her relationship with her mother um that's some of the most powerful intimate writing that i think wildbow has ever done and it's so complicated because like like it's like he took he took the challenge and then multiplied it by three and, mm. and said, okay, we're doing this. We're going to do this. Um, I think that's one thing that I, I respect the most about him as an author is like, I think you look at, at Ward and again, I'm not going to spoil anything. So nobody freak out. But um, I think you look at Ward as a sequel to worm and you say, okay, he decided he wanted to do it to, to, 
take a story that's a sequel to his most popular work. And he decided he wanted to maybe focus less on the external conflict and more on internal conflict in that sequel. Those are two really hard things to do. And then he's like, all right, I did that. That's done. Now what do I do? Well, I want to tell um, a sequel, but not a sequel to another one of my works. And I'm going to do three protagonists. Um, and it's just like, geez, give yourself a break. Because like, th- I, I think the degree of difficulty on the story is really high, super high. Mm-hmm. And I think he's pulled it off in the first arc, at least. Yeah, I mean, to, to sort of Matt's point before, I, I totally agree that one of the things I've always loved the most about Walbo's writing is how insanely good he is at capturing completely different voices in the interludes. And, and, you know, something you sort of can lose track of in an individual story is how defined the voice is of a protagonist because mm. you almost just default to thinking that of that as the, the normal voice. Mm-hmm. And having three protagonists that we're rotating through is really emphasizing to me how great Walbo is at establishing, you know, the voice of each, you know, character that he writes for. Um, and, and it's so interesting kind of jumping between these three very distinct ones like constantly. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the cool things that I noticed when I was kind of going back through the chapters in preparation for this conversation is that each each interlude, or not interlude, each chapter, they're all interludes now. Um, each chapter <laughs> does a very good job, as you're talking about, of establishing that character's voice. But I also like the ways in which, like, 1.1, for example, is, is a chapter that is mostly focused on establishing who Verona is as a person. It's her chapter. It's from her point of view. But I also think it does a lot of work to really get you to understand who Avery and and Lucy are as people. And and the advantage of that is as you as you you guys were saying is then we can immediately contrast this understanding of who these people are as characters with the moments that we get in their head. And in his previous works, yeah, we'd have to wait 8 chapters, 9 chapters, 10 chapters or more before we got maybe a hint at what someone actually looks like um what 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 life is like through another person's perspective and yeah we're getting it all the time all the mm-hmm. time and we it allows you to compare and contrast in in very quick ways that that i think make what he's doing more transparent um with with these three characters it's wonderful yeah it feels like we are more than an arc into the story like in in terms of narrative movement you know um, mm-hmm. and maybe that's because this is going to be a shorter story and Wildo is literally accelerating the timetable. Um, but I mean, yeah, do you all agree with that sentiment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back at what we've covered in arc one, I was already like, we've done so much, so, so much just world building as well as character buildings, like everything, so much of everything has happened in this one arc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we we got in, I guess it was 1.3, we got this setup of here are the two primary suspects. It's John and it's the Hungry Choir. And then this arc kind of, I mean, not fully, but kind of writes them off as possibilities, right? Like John seems to be pretty on the level from our interactions with him, apart from the fact that he, uh, you know, holds all of our protagonists at the ends of different weapons. And um, we get, you know, more on the Hungry Choir who seem almost not sentient and Mm -hmm. not able to operate on a level high enough to have done this crime or crime Mm. in air quotes. And so it's really interesting how it feels like the story in this very first arc sets up here's the obvious possibilities and then kind of checks them off immediately. And now I'm again, just sitting back being like, I really don't know where this story's going to go. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's been fun because I, I agree. Like I have no idea I have no idea who did it. I, I guess at the end, maybe um, 
we, we might have a prediction section and i, I think i do mm. have one wild theory that that is definitely wrong that i want to talk love about it. then love those um but <laughs> but yeah like i mean i think i think mystery like murder mysteries and uh kind of setting building while holding back information are wild those one of wild those many strengths like mm. and, and by that i mean like in all of his stories he's he's usually you know kind of drip feeding you setting information but then holding back certain setting details so that he can kind of get you with them at the right moment and you know usually some some kind of setting background reveal where you're like oh shit yeah like i, I didn't yeah. know i didn't i didn't get it and um and i i think that that like how that is going to play into this story where we you know, we've all read Pack, so we kind of get the setting, like the larger setting, but we don't really get Kennet. And so mm. while Bo is drip feeding us Kennet in a way where you constantly feel like, yeah, I think I'm starting to get it, but like you, you we definitely aren't being shown everything. And just b- basically I, all I'm trying to say is this sort of thing, I think really plays to his strengths and I'm thrilled to be yeah. seeing it. Yeah. I- I would say, you know, in every Wabo work, there are moments where you things happen that recontextualize earlier, you know, conversations, right? It's something that mm-hmm. he does a lot. And it's, sure. you know, it's this moment of, oh, I thought that was doing one thing, but actually it's doing a second thing. And then later you almost always get, I thought that was just doing those two things, but it was actually doing a third thing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> especially in the other, in, in Pact, the other, other verse story. And so taking that and directly applying it to a murder mystery, which is, you know, explicitly all about that. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. um, it makes it already like I'm so excited just to see what uh, seemingly mundane sentences from this first arc are going to come back as being major plot points later. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, this universe is so detail written, like by design. Like that, this is the way Wildbo has crafted this universe, these characters inhabit that every detail matters. And yeah, I mean, that concept is just perfect to to layer on top of that murder mystery conceit like it's just it's just so obvious that i can't believe i didn't think of it you know it's like it's like (laughs) while i was reading pact i was like oh this should be a murder mystery story because like that'd Mm. be perfect that'd be absolutely perfect because you're absolutely right that like how many how many clues have we been given so far just in this first arc that um in a a few months will seem super obvious that we just totally missed it could be Mm. it could be like dozens we don't know and those are my favorite. I, uh, that, that's why I love so many Wobbo stories because I love that feeling of having a reveal and feeling like an idiot for not seeing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, I, yeah, I'm pretty confident that like if we reread Arc One in six months, there's going to be so many moments we just like, oh fuck, yeah. it was right there. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Matt, Matt, and I have talked for a long time about you know about twists and reveals and how these things work, and I think you, he and I have kind of settled on this. This idea that the, the the reason they work when they do work is because a successful twist or a successful reveal um, manages to recontextualize everything else that came before it. Um, I think a twist that doesn't do that kind of just falls flat. And I feel like mm. that's what that's what he, his stories are so good at. And that's going to be fucking great when it, we see it here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, we talked I think we also talked about the fact that the the, the proper way to set up. Um, a twisty situation that re- that relies on a big reveal is to have a lot of red herrings, and that's exactly what he's doing here, right? Like, miss the hungry choir. Um, I mean, I mean, really, you you could make a story where each of the each of the others is a candidate, right? 
Like they mm, all yeah. seem, they all seem suspicious. They all seem evil, <laughs> <laughs> or w- w- one or both of those. Um, we um we opened up that that pale predictor thing uh, mm-hmm. earlier in the week, uh, and I think we've gotten just about every character in the story as, <laughs> as a whodunit prediction. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, like I, I agree, Wabo's so good at burying the truth in just like the sheer amount of detail he adds to the story in the world. Yeah. But it's a good way of saying it. But in in a way that always feels fair, right? Like he's oh, yeah. not he's never lying to you. Like it's never I I tricked you. It's it's always mm. it was right there, you just didn't see it. Um, you just didn't yeah. put the correct puzzle pieces together to have it right. all drop he, into place. He puts too many dots on the page for you to be sure which ones you're meant to be connecting. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, mm. I like that a lot. But I mean, I think to to kind of bring it back to the the girls and their interactions with their family i think the thing that most interests me in in seeing what happens is i mean the the murder mystery portion that who killed who killed this this other um is is our central narrative conflict it's the thing that's driving our story it's the it's the thing that got these girls involved in this world to begin with but like their reasons for investigating it are like kind of a side effect of the reason they did this is because they wanted the power, right? Like they, mm. they, they thought they, they're, they're 13 year old girls. And someone said, look, you can all get all this cool shit. And they were like, sweet, we'll get all this cool shit. I want to do that. And it's like, okay, your, your payment for that is you have to investigate this, this murder mystery. So I am very interested to see how the, the main, the conflict and the main stories of these three girls is going to eventually wrap around the Carmine beast in a way mm. that feels satisfying. Because I think, I think right now at the end of our first arc, we have, we have Verona's wants, Lucy's wants, Avery's wants, and the whodunit. And they're kind of separate things right now. Um, but I, I think I have faith in this story that those things w- are going to weave and intertwine through each other in really interesting ways going forward. Well, I think it, it's interesting because there's so much more to this story than just the murder mystery. Sure. And I, I think that's that's kind of shown in... Like, like Lucy is really the, the Kenneteer who cares... Sorry, who cares the most about the murder mystery? Like she, she's definitely been the one who was trying to solve it. Whereas, like I think Avery was just in it to get friends. Yeah, and mm. Verona was in it to to learn magic. Like she was very much the one who saw this the most as a sort of Harry Potter scenario, uh, where she was going to get cool magic powers. Um, and, and so you know the fact that only one of them was super interested in solving the crime specifically it, it kind of captures to me how. You know, it's like, yes, there's this murder mystery and it is very central to the story, but there's so much more to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't, I think, I think that we don't yet know, we don't really know like who the Carmine Beast was, if, if that makes sense. Like mm. I, I'm reminded of, of the prologue where it's sort of portrayed in this way that makes it very sympathetic, right? It's, it's portrayed as being kind of a, a huge tragedy that this thing has died. And it's interesting because everything since that point has almost portrayed it as like, oh, it's just a force of nature. It's just a, it's just a thing that we have to have. Don't worry about it. And it's like, I, I, it makes me a bit suspicious that I'm like, I'm like there's maybe there's something in the nature of this beast where once they learn more about it, they'll become more sympathetic Yeah, and, and, you know, re- really want to, to get whoever did this. Um, there's a mm. lot of room I think there. Yeah. I, I think that's so interesting because I, I think, <laughs> I think they're, while I totally agree that Lucy is the one that is most invested in actually solving the mystery, I do think none of them 
cares about the Carmine Beast at, in any way. No, so I think, I, I think, and it's so fascinating the contrast because we have we have the the prologue which paints this death as this heartbreaking tragedy, right? Like it's just it's just a real it's sad. It's sad watching this thing slowly die. Um, and then we move into the story proper, and all of our point of view characters are like. I mean, yeah, we'll do it. We'll like investigate this murder, but like, I mean, whatever. And even the person that wants to do it is really just like, they. Lucy doesn't care about the car. So yeah, I mean, there is this weird contrast there, and and I agree with you, Matt, that seeing seeing where that goes going forward is going to be really interesting because I do think there is going to be eventually be a reason that these these kids get get invested in the investigation beyond the this was part of your agreement way. Mm. I think hasn't there also just been a number of beats like people have set up that the Carmine Beast wasn't like you know a friendly chum type mm. yeah. Yeah. I think it was even her her three colleagues were sort of like yeah she wasn't the type to have friends like she was she was vicious she was the embodiment yeah. of, of violence in the area like, like hunting and um, being hunted right yeah exactly so like you're right. I'm so keen to just learn more about the Carmine Beast and like how yeah, because the prologue set it up as this tragedy, and then since then everyone's kind of been like, well, you know, in her own, like <laughs> she was a bit of a dick. Yeah, um, yeah. It's so, I mean that's, so you, that's part of the that's part of the the very standard murder mystery trope, where it's like every suspect you interview is like, nah, I didn't kill her, but I fucking wish I had. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <like>, what? <laughs> that's the other funny thing to me about this story so far is all of the others that we've met, except for the hungry choir, I suppose have been set up to have some level of, like, tragedy and pity that you can put onto them. Like, they're mm-hmm. all kind of sad characters that you can relate to. But also, they're all monsters, right? Like, yeah. literally, they're all monsters. And to the extent that any of them could kind of snap explicitly in story and do horrifying things, which is a kind of dynamic that I love. And I love that a lot of this first arc is the our, our three protagonists kind of learning that things are not as nice and rosy as they might seem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, how, how much of... How much of that dissonance, I think, is just because of that point of view that where these kids are in over their head and they just mm. don't they haven't fully realized that yet where it's like um, like I, I think I think Verona's interaction with Miss is so fascinating to me because she just doesn't seem to care that this is like a creepy monster. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. The, the the beginning of the story, I mean, one dot one, the way it begins where like Verona's doing dishes and. Miss is like creepily standing outside of her window, staring at her, and Verona's just like, "Yeah, that that that's creepy," but like yeah. <laughs> she's not she's not actually unsettled by it. Like yeah, she's, she's just joking, she's like, right? She's yeah, she's joking around. It. She yeah, thinks she, she's sort of like, "If you're gonna kill me, can you like hurry up already? Like fucking do it." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Verona is such a wonderful character. I love her so much. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting though. I, I agree. I mean, they they have. I think all three of them have very different levels of, of wariness mm-hmm. about about the practice, and I think maybe about the world in general. Because um, I yeah. think that that's I think that or maybe their wariness about the practice is is a reflection of their worry of yeah. their of their deep seated you know wariness as as a person. Yeah. Um, and their expectation that the world is going to harm them or, or whatever. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know. They they all have different levels of wariness, but I think for all three of them, 
I feel comfortable saying they don't have enough levels of awareness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I mean, I think that is the the intent of that this final this final chapter of the arc, the interlude, right? That mm. is that that's what makes that fundamentally clear to our characters. And I I haven't yeah. read two point one yet, so uh, I don't know what the aftermath of them witnessing this thing is. But I, I feel like this is going to be our characters maybe for the first real time understanding what people meant when they said this world was dangerous, understanding what Charles meant when he said, you don't want to do this. You trust yeah. me. This is not <laughs> what you want to do. Yeah, yeah. I think Charles, Charles is a great thing to have in the story, right? Because mm -hmm. he's, he's standing there being like, I am, I am your future. Don't, don't do this. And, <laughs> and, and I think, I think when you're young and you see like an adult who has crashed and burned, your, your tendency is to be like, well, I'm just not going to screw up the way you screwed up because yeah. Yeah. like, I'm not, I'm not like you. I'm not going to make the mistakes that you made. You're obviously just a screw up. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to do it better than you. Right. Like I, I really like th that is, I think what most 13 year olds think when, you know, especially when they see an adult who has had problems. And so I don't think they, for a nanosecond actually think to themselves, oh, I don't want to end up like that guy. Like yeah. ma maybe we should not do this or you know, they're, they're just like, yeah, we'll do it. We'll just be more careful than Charles was. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's the entire basis of the Hungry Choir as well. Like to tie that into the interlude, that's like the whole thing is Gabe has been on websites about the Hungry Choir and he's like, okay, I know the rules and I just need to not screw up and it'll be fine. And then he gets to the ritual and it's like, how are you meant to not screw up? This is fucking insane. Like yeah. it's, yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it's a bit of a through line. Uh, please, absolutely. Please beat a bull to death with your hands <laughs> good luck <laughs> not even to death just like enough that you can rip chunks of its flesh out so i don't know um that's great yeah I, I love also thinking about this from the perspective of obviously pale is something that you know people might not have read packed before coming into it and so i think the journey of um of you know verona and the other characters to a lesser extent coming in thinking oh this is a harry potter i'm, I'm being harry pottered and then getting to 1.z and having this moment of oh shit, this is actually like a viscerally horrifying, disgusting world that I've entered in, is sure. explicitly the journey that the new audience members need to go through as well, right? Like, right, right. I think even reading it on the page, the audience is like, yeah, but these are our protagonists, so they'll be fine. And then we get to 1.z and it's like, oh no, this is actually much more disgusting and horrifying than I thought it was going to be. Totally, totally. And and I think that's like, to, to give Wildbow all the credit in the world, I think that's what, what I'm talking about when I'm talking about degree of difficulty. Because I think mm. the challenge here is you need to introduce your world to new readers in a way that is fun and engaging, but you also need to engage with your readers that already know a lot of this stuff. Like, there's a lot of exposition in this first arc. Um, there's a lot of world building in this first arc, and you need to do it in a way that captures the interest of people who have never read a single wild bow work in their life and the people that have read packed all the way through and know a lot of what a lot of what this exposition is already and that's hard it's hard to do that and i think he does it i think the the conceit of um uh, this this kind of undercurrent of dramatic irony where uh, we the we the packed readers know a lot more than the characters about what they're about to get into is what makes the, that exposition engaging for previous readers. Um, and the fun of the world and learning all this stuff is what makes the new readers engaged. And I think like that to me, that's such a, a that's such a hard challenge, like thing to nail in this way. And I really do think this first arc nailed it. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. like we're gonna do at the end of this episode. I think a little like you know packed spoilers, including bit, and I definitely want to dive into that a lot more with specific examples because sure, I absolutely sure. agree. I think the way Wobbo's juggled it is is so fascinating to those of us who already you know came in with packed knowledge. So mm-hmm. yeah, like we we should definitely dive into that with examples uh, in the packed bit at the end. Cool. I feel like we should talk about the idea of these little bonus contents i don't know what's the word for them little the bonus extra bits. material i think extra I think materials is- yes um so the brochure the notes on others notes on practices the flyer and app like all these little extra bits which is something that wild Bo hasn't done in any of his other stories right um yeah kind of break his format a lot more explicitly than he's done previously I- i'm interested to hear both of your thoughts on that yeah i love oh. i love them yeah. so much <laughs> I love them so much. It's such a wonderful idea. Um, and I, I think it's, I think like there, there's a lot, we've, we've talked about web serials a lot and the strengths of web serials. And I think being able to break format in these kind of ways is one of the strengths. And I love mm. seeing him kind of explore what breaking format means. Um, in Ward, he did a lot of things with structure and like how you read on the page. And in this, he's just doing just some bonus stuff. Like we're just going to, here's a picture I drew. Here's a list. Here's it. It makes the world feel a little bit more real and also just really ties to the strength of serialized reading. I think I love them. I love them. Yeah. I mean, not just serialized reading, but web serial specifically where you can toss images in there. You know, you, you can, you can mix, you can, you can, you can do whatever you can do with a web page, basically, and and your and whatever your skill level of creating, creating images, you know. So, I mean, I'm I love I love all these kind of web fiction things that that mix and match between media. You know, next week we're going to talk about seventeen seven seventy six, which is oh, nice. I think a great example <laughs> yes. of that. That's a um, perfect example. Yeah, and I mean, this is largely a web serial, obviously, but like I I, I think it's great. Uh, I think this is a great evolution. And I mean, it's a thing that people love. And I mean, I include myself in people. It's just like, oh, this is this is just so fun. I get to dig through this and, and think about it and internalize it and process it and talk about it with others. And, um, and, and just, you know, finally, like certain aspects of, you know, an image, you know, Wild Bo's able to say like, this is what it looks like, this image, this is what right. it looks like right here. I don't have to, I mean, yeah, there, there are certain times when you just want to be like, this is exactly what it looks like or, right. or you know, or, or you want to say like, this is all of the stuff that's in Avery's backpack. I don't actually want to do that in the text itself because that would actually be pretty boring writing. So we do it this way. We have a big just list of her inventory and that yeah. makes it, that's like a, that's like, oh yeah, yeah. I accept that. This is like we're doing a and d campaign. Um, yeah. mm. A list of inventory items is actually fun in that context. I, I think, yeah, I think my favorite one was the notes on, the the runes and how and how all that works yeah. um and here's 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 why i don't actually i don't actually care about any of that stuff okay let me let me explain like <laughs> i i listened to you guys break down like you basically took what you learned about the runes and took the pictures that he did with the backpack inventory and you were able to make a lot of very smart educated guesses on um, what each of these runes means and what it could do. I thought that was great, and I'm so glad that there was someone else out there to do it for me, so I didn't have to do that. Mm. I love, <laughs> I love that the system exists, and I love what the system existing does for the world, um, because I think it's really, really cool. 
it makes it feel more real. It makes it, the rules feel like they, they exist and there's a way you can work through them and it just feels a lot more tangible. I don't really, I don't personally care to like be a master of the rune system to where I would know how to draw them myself. And there's plenty of people out there that, that can do it. And I, so I love that it exists because it allows that to, it allows that to exist, right? It allows that to be a, a firm textual thing in the world that you can turn back to if you want to. Um, but also I do think that like having to do that detailed of an explanation via just words might get a little dull uh, because it's very, yeah. very complicated. It'd be like a textbook, right? Yeah. I was going to point to them as, as my favorite as well, because like the, the complicated runes that we got in the 1.8 bonus material with like the smoke machine and stuff is just something you couldn't have done in text because mm, like mm -hmm. detailing it so completely in text is just always going to be a bit a bit confusing mm. um and then yeah like the, you know it kind of felt like homework when we got this this really complicated rune and i was like okay well i have to open up the 1.4 thing and and use the building box and like i i am the sort of person who was like i need to try and figure this out and it was so fun to have that as, as something that you know couldn't have been done in the same way in any of the other stories yeah I, I love it i love it the thing about it as well is it ties so explicitly into the fact that this is a murder mystery right because these these little bits and pieces have this feeling of you know basically an arg right where you're trying to solve your version of a mystery and it, it is like so thematically perfect that this is the story that he decides to do it in because it lets you get inside the vibe of like, oh, I'm going to try and put together these puzzle pieces in a way sure. that obviously you can relate to the characters and be engaged in the mystery without this, but it, it it's viscerally another level of mystery and puzzle solving that adds on top of the story, which I think is yeah. just like thematically great for this as well. I, I agree. And I think one of, one of Wildbo's skill at a writer is how he manages to engage different people in different ways with the same story because i think everyone mm. appro everyone approaches literature differently everyone approaches reading differently everyone has things that they like more than other things when they're when they're experiencing a story and i think it, uh, this is a system that for me just knowing it exists and knowing it's super complicated is like i love it it feels real it feels like someone spent the time to make this thing i don't need to personally be an expert of it but i love it but then people like you elliot that that love getting into the nitty-gritty details of it and love exploring it and understanding it and and really becoming a master of it um it allows for that to exist at the same time and so we both can go to the same book read the same chapters take take very different things out of it and take different reasons for why we like it. Um, and I, I think that's so cool. Like we both said this was our favorite thing and it was like for totally different reasons. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, if you look at Walbo works in general, it's like, well, do you, do you want characters? Do you want world building? Do mm -hmm. you want, you know, X, Y, Z? Like they've usually got it all. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. I, I was thinking about the awakening rituals, um, you know, similar to, uh, you know, the, the rune drawings where it's like, okay, this is, this is way too much detail for me to process as I'm going through it. And mm. because I'm consuming this detail as, uh, because I'm consuming this story as just a, a casual reader this time through, I'm probably not going to go back and do that, but you absolutely could. Right. I think you guys probably did spend a lot of time looking at the awakening ritual and thinking about, okay, what could this mean exactly? Yeah. Like I think that, Entering that's through one. the coin means this and leaving yeah. through the skull means that. Yeah. yeah, that's going to be something we're going to have to go back to at the end of the story because <laughs> there was so much there. Exactly, because that's the thing where w when the murderer is clear, we're going to be like, oh, yeah, it was all right there in the awakening, obviously. And of course, it was uh, the yeah. dagger. <laughs> Duh. Yeah.
<laughs> yeah. Duh, yeah. Um, I, I think that's that's some of the extra fun of having like a supernatural murder mystery like this because we're getting clues that we don't understand. Like like the the awakening ritual. We're going to be able to go back to that at the end of the story. I'm I'm almost certain, and be like, oh, this was hinting at this. This was hinting at this, but we can't put those pieces together right now because we don't understand the magic as much. So that's like a really fun way for Wildbo to give us clues that we can't quite put together. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. I think my, my least favorite piece of foreshadowing was Lucy constantly saying, I'm going to murder Avery over and over again toward the beginning of the story. <laughs> yeah, and as we all know now, six months later, she does. <laughs> uh, man, I hope that's not foreshadowing, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Uh-huh. She only said it twice. We really need to watch out for the third time, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's pay attention yeah, well, to that. Well, right, because now if she says it again, it, it's an it oath, comes right? True. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry, gotta murder you now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, come on. I, I really think, you know, you okay, from the, from the storytelling perspective, you've set up the element of being forsworn as a front and center mm. uh, uh, narrative uh, decision. You, you sure. have Charles. Charles is there that's the whole thing, right? Like, I don't think the story introduces Charles that way unless we're going to have being forsworn as a story element in some in some further sense. So, mm. I don't know, man. <laughs> so, Lucy's going to say it, and then all three of them are just going to be like, well, I guess you have to do it now, Lucy. <laughs> you either have to do it or you have to be forsworn, Shoot and then how does that affect granny. your circle? And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fucking can gun. It's the craziest thing in the world. Uh, I love get over that, the can oh gun. God. It's so fun to me that, the you know, Lucy is the one who is the most overtly, you know, on board with trying to solve the mystery. And as a response, she's the one that always seems to be in the most dangerous situations. You know, she's held at gunpoint. She is given a thing that turns things into weapons. Like, she's basically given tools to escalate violence because she's the one that's the most on their track. Like, I don't know. Oh, that's I... sus to me. Uh-huh. I mean, that was there right from the beginning. Like, her personal item in the Awakening Ritual was a dagger. Mm. Um, like, she she sort of had, you know, a, an element of violence in her personality right from that get-go. Like Matt mentioned, like, right, we were first introduced to her sort of jokingly, hopefully, threatening to murder Avery. <laughs> hopefully, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we'll have to see. Yeah. How do you guys think the, I mean, like, I think there's, I, I'm, I'm not paying a lot of attention to the community response to this. I'm mostly just kind of, cause I'm, cause I'm perpetually behind. So I'm mostly just reading it on my own and then listening to y'all's episodes. Um, is there, I mean, there's gotta be a lot of talk about the whole class ranker thing and how it's going to play into the overarching story at large. I mean, part of me keeps going back and forth between this idea that um, this was just like a fun thing that is going to lead to more conflict because it's ostracizing kids in this classroom. Um, I think there was a lot of speculation as to whether this was what the ritual was. And that of course didn't mm. end up being true, but um, is, is there, is there something more going on with this thing or is this literally just a fun look how shitty teenagers are? <laughs> Um, yeah, I, we've definitely talked about it a bit. Like I, I'm, I'm firmly on team. It's just teenagers being shitty teenagers, mm-hmm. but, um, I, I've been a little disconnected from the community and that's honestly been one of the interesting things tackling this show is because my live reads are a couple of days after the chapter comes out. By the time I read them, everyone's actually just gearing up for the next chapter. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm missing a lot more of the community than I was in comparison to say Ward. Um, which has been like, you know, both interesting for this 
podcast because it lets me sort of talk about it mostly as you know my own perspective but then it also you know it feels like i'm separate from a lot of the community uh which is a bit sad sure sure yeah mm. i feel um, that mm-hmm. I, I guess i've been more connected because i am reading things live um and yeah class ranker is interesting to me because i'm definitely in the camp of i well i i still do think there's something else going on it feels too i don't know like this is the thing about it and this is something that comes up i guess a lot in wabo stories is it feels like there has to be more going on because it's just too cruel for it to just be humans. <laughs> but mm-hmm. maybe it is just like, it is just humans being shitty. And that's yeah. kind of like, you know, Verona sees uh, the practice as an escape from her shitty life. But uh, it's interesting to me looking at this and, and comparing like humans life being shitty compared with like the shittiness of the practice. And that actually there's probably a lot more parallels than you would think between those two things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what that's what I love mm-hmm. about the end of the arc is uh, we kind of we kind of have this this wonderful ominous moment where Verona basically says, "Hey, I I don't want to be a, a human anymore. Humans suck." Mm-hmm. And then we move on to an interlude that shows how much others suck too. And um <laughs> and and again, I haven't read two two dot one, but I'm really I, I think I think one of the coolest things about that interlude is that we spend eight chapters like defining these characters, who they are, what they wanted out of the practice. And then we show them what, what this world is really like. And we get to then, and then we get to then kind of like move into the next arc knowing, okay, they're all going to have a reaction to what they just witnessed and what they just were part of. And each one of those reactions are going to ping off what they were hoping this world would be for them. And hers, I think is going to be super, super interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to point out again that the Hungry Choir is explicitly a a thing that is horrifying because it plays off of your human like anxieties and desires, right? Like sure, it's bait. Sure. It doesn't you don't get lured into it because of any, you know, you get lured into it because you have a a human problem that it it, it appeals to and then kind of emphasizes, right? Like yeah. it's it's the it practice as it a doesn't, Yeah. So it doesn't entrap you. You have to sign up. Yeah. Like, you know, that's the, that's the whole premise of the first chunk of Wom.Z is Gabe has to sit there and he has to enter his name, you know, and like that's, you know, it, it's not tricking you into it in, in a complete sense. It makes you sign up for it, which sure. is, you know, that much more horrifying. Yeah. yeah. And it it's that idea of mm-hmm. this isn't escapism because these this world is just an amplification, an amp, you know, an amplification of all of your human problems it's just gonna make them all worse yeah i mean i love i love the way you can Mm -hmm. you can take the awakening ritual and compare it to the hungry choir ritual and Mm. i mean that same rule was true nobody nobody made these girls do this nobody forced them (laughs) to sign up for this thing they chose to do it um some someone preyed upon their weaknesses as well and 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 talked them into it or or just 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 laid laid the the ground Set just enough yeah. right just just a, just a little bit just enough to get them mm-hmm. to commit to this thing and of course like the immediate result of their ritual is not um that that small children uh, devour them um and it's, it's just awful it's so awful but but it could be right like that's the, like mm-hmm. we, we, like this is the yeah. this is the world they're forever a part of now and mm-hmm. and i love yeah, I i'd love... say the key word there is yeah. is yet like, <laughs> little children aren't devouring them yeah yet. <laughs> yeah well I, I think i mean yeah this is this is definitely a major theme and and whether or not that the class ranker app is magical 
it resonates with this theme because all of I think I believe all three of them when they when they they basically said hey we shouldn't okay I'm I'm paraphrasing at a very high level but they were like well we shouldn't use the class ranker app because it's stupid and and we'll get in trouble and then and then they were like well okay we're all, we're going to use it but we'll all use it in a way where we're mm-hmm. kind of keeping it at arm's length and we're not really like committing to anything with it and then each of them has now bitten off more than they can mm-hmm. chew in a way that they didn't anticipate like like thematically that's perfect right like one of them is upset because they don't get the connections that, that, that they thought they would or that they you know probably secretly wanted uh one of them makes connections they didn't intend to make they're going to be misinterpreted um basically the story has many many beats of these young people signing up for something and not realizing what they're signing up for despite having all of the information they needed ahead of time mm-hmm. to know that it was a bad <laughs> yep. idea yeah, that is yeah. the theme of the story so, does so that far. Mean, does that mean Lucy's in the most danger because she's ranked the lowest on the app? <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. Or is ranking high bad? What's going to happen? I mean, to I, th- Mia? I don't think there's a good ranking anywhere <laughs> on the thing, right? That, that's the thing with class ranker. You get, you get it, different like, problems. It was the sort of thing where, like, you, you know, you're just looking at it as it's introduced in one point one. It's like there's no way that this. There's ends no well for yeah. There's anyone. no good <laughs> outcome. Like what? Yeah. Oh. Ah, um, <laughs> what other thoughts have we got about Lost Words? I think we should, should we dive into talking about the name of the arc and where we think that ties in? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Um, so, Elliot, do you want to take us through the official dictionary definition of this phrase? Yes, according to Colin's dictionary, uh, to be lost for words is to be so surprised or shocked that you don't know what to say. Mm. Um so, yeah, I mean, I think there's, like, actually a number of ways that, you know, that phrase ties into what we've just been talking about and what we saw in this arc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the most the most textual one is the Hungry Choir, right? <laughs> that you literally, yeah. literally speak. cannot speak. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then, like, you know, I think it also ties in a bit more metaphorically, like, you know, as, as we've already said, so much of this arc was the, the three Kenneteers learning, like, how out of their depth they are. Like, you know, they... They're literally kind of left stunned by the magnitude of what they've gotten involved in a, a number of times. Like, and it, it sort of mirrors what you were mm-hmm. just saying with Gabe. Like, the Hungry Quiet just yeah. full on takes it away from you. Whereas, you know, the Three Kennedys have just had a number of moments where they're like, oh my God. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I, I mean, Wild Bo is, is fond of, of sort of overloading words and concepts. So I, I, I definitely. The definition, you know, the dictionary definition of lost for words is what you just said, but you can also twist it and be like, you know, lost because of words, lost due to words. Yeah. And it's like, well, okay, you did this awakening ritual, which was basically just words, <laughs> and now you're lost. <laughs> or, or or you can say, um, if you happen to lie, then you're lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, if you say the wrong words and you're lost, just in, just in general, obviously, double, double so during the mm-hmm. awakening, during the uh, hungry choir ritual. Um and there's a lot of characters who are lost. I mean, uh, Charles is lost. Um, you could you could s- say that um, various of the girls' parents yep. seem pretty lost. I mean, actually, each um, of the uh, each of the what, protagonists feels like they have their own loss that they have to kind of come to terms with. Often with relating mm-hmm. to their parents, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to kind of to kind of mm-hmm. build off of what Matt was saying before about not being able to lie. Like this is. It's kind of a, a, a stupid analysis, but they lost access to a bunch of words because now they can't lie. There's like a bunch of words that now they can't say, Yeah, yeah. you know, because they've lost access to mm-hmm. those words. That's a very kind of crude 
tying it to the to the title but like yeah they've you know they've they're much more limited in what they can say just at all yeah yeah well my my feeling about wild though and arc titles is that if there is a way to twist some meaning out of the arc title yeah. then he will find it <laughs> yeah 100 percent um what do we think the theme of these arc titles is so far we've got blood run cold and lost for words which are both like i guess things that happen to you when you're spooked <laughs> true yeah when you're yeah when you're frightened um I mean that's that, that's another one where it's it's got the you know the, the obvious the obvious interpretation of just like yeah your blood runs cold when you're scared but also uh uh the character is going for a run in with the blood cold, running down from the moon, uh, and chasing yeah. blood <laughs> yeah right yeah like it's 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 many it's always every every interpretation yeah. right yeah. um but no I, I like I like what you just said I think is perfect that these are uh, uh, we 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 know the name of the, yeah we know the name of the next arc but I forgot it. Um, are we? Are yeah, we I mean, this to say is coming that? out after know. our discussion on it. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Oh, so it's stolen away. Sure, the next I arc, believe. stolen away. Like like you yeah. know your breath yeah. is stolen away when you're frightened. So I like your connection of these. These are things that that are that have to do with I, being I, terrified. I really like that. So far, I mean, they've all been idioms, right? Which is a very mm-hmm. interesting choice mm-hmm. because idioms are a group of words that has. That, that whose meaning is not deductible from the words themselves. Like you can't, you can't really like it, it has meaning as a phrase by itself. Um, mm-hmm. And that seems to me that is something that is true to the practice so far, that it is very dif- difficult to just deduce what all this stuff means just from, just from the words themselves or from what's being described. Mm-hmm. Like you have to, un- you have to see the whole picture of what, what, what the practice is, what this world is like. Um, I think that's very interesting to me as well. That's, that, that's really cool because an idiom is also um, a, a, a sequence of words that is given power yeah, by repetition. Yep, yep, mm-hmm. will. Yeah. <laughs> like, like the only reason we know what these, like, you know, toe the line or whatever if that if you know the first time you heard that you'd be mm-hmm. like huh yeah what? definitely yeah. someone had to make what, that what, up what, at what, some point i i, I like that better than mine <laughs> yeah. i think that i think that is absolutely what what this is doing is is yeah they are they are phrases that are given power via their use their their re- repetitive use mm-hmm. which is literally what the practice does right like the mm-hmm. more you use something the more power it has um and yeah no mm-hmm. i love that i love that that's so good yeah Cool. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, you know, I think this arc, um, you know, also just brings up a number of other themes in general that are worth talking about beyond just the, the ones that directly tie to the arc name. And these could just be sort of stuff to do with the story in general. We don't know yet, but um, like, I, I just wanted to sort of talk about how much uh, there's a sense of like loneliness or isolation to just everyone we've met in the mm. story so far. Like Avery's is very textual um she's she's quite isolated and alone all of the time verona's home situation isn't exactly well connected um <laughs> lucy has her mum, but um you know the way there's there's already a bit of a rift forming there more than there already was yeah yeah and lucy also seems pretty like a bit ostracized at school yes yeah yeah absolutely yeah. class ranker made that quite explicit uh same thing for gabe and and even if we're doing blood one run cold uh, you know, Louise was out living alone as well. Yeah. Um, and the Carmine Beast died alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, in, everyone's great. alone. In in a world where connection seems so important, I think it is interesting how um it has preyed on those people who were alone in some way, um and mm. and and used their isolation, used their loneliness against them. 
Um, well, that's mm-hmm. the thing I love about yeah. about this world is we can't say that that's just a decision made by the author. It could just be explicitly these three have been chosen because they they are <laughs> in their own ways alone, right? right like right. it works both mm-hmm. on the in text and metatextual level. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, I think Kenneth is a you know maybe somebody already sort sort of said this in a different way, but Kenneth is defined as this lonely isolated mm. place it's yep. it's far it's far away from everything um it's like a full day's drive to you know a- anything practically um so yeah I, it, that's like the characteristic of this setting even that's cool yeah yeah well and then it'll be interesting to see because the 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 one group i would say this doesn't really apply to is in general the others in town actually seem quite unified and organized and together mm. um so like i'm interested to follow that and and you know maybe uh, i i'm assuming that that's not actually the case and the daggers are going to come out before the end of the story <laughs> um uh, but it's, it's going to be so interesting to see because like you know we, we've seen all, all the people and the humans in this story seem so alone and isolated and the others have seemed to be much better at putting up a bit more of a unified front yeah yeah they actually seem to have like friendships like like the goblin goes and hangs out with yeah. with the the war dog and you're like Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, how is that exactly? Uh, I, Absolutely. I am so curious as to what is under the surface here. Like, there's, uh, yeah, there's so much of this that you're just like, are they just, like, obviously they can't outright lie to these kids, but how are you, how are you misrepresenting the truth in your really clever other way? I'm yeah. so curious. Yeah. Uh, these, mm-hmm. these other verse stories are so good at just making you lose all faith in, in the English language. <laughs> English language is such bullshit. That's that's what they've taught me. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, even even just the idea that we can we can effectively communicate using spoken words or or, or written words for that matter. It's like, nah, Gosh. nah. You you've convinced me, Wildo. Yeah. It's all garbage. Yeah. We, yep. we, we, we you can never know another human yeah, being. Yeah, I'm glad truly. we don't. Uh, I'm glad we don't talk for a living, folks. well that's why we repeat ourselves so much even with the constraint of yes everyone is telling the truth explicitly there's still so much wiggle room like it's it's so much fun Uh it's great yeah i mean that's like that's like that's what my favorite thing about this is like i think you guys i heard you guys talk about it on your earlier shows is this idea that like you could just ask all the suspects if they did it (laughs) and and they can't lie but then Mm. you quickly realize like oh but like this is bullshit like this is like it's so easy to manipulate and and yeah say thing it's just it's so manipulatable i think it's i love it i love it yeah like the carmine mm. beast isn't quite dead right. depending on your definition so mm. like there's even wriggle wiggle you can't just ask did you kill the carmine beast because the word kill there is up for debate so the person yeah. who did it yeah. could still be like well no yeah no i injured them and right. then they well, died <laughs> yeah exactly. yeah and and if you're yeah. if you're trying to yeah. like uh, craft um, an investigation around this in which you know who did it or are the person who did it yourself who do you want investigating these things in a world where you can't lie but if you ask the wrong questions you will never get the right answers um, well how about some some isolated young girls mm-hmm. who are not very world wise yet um, like it's such it's, it's brilliant conceit I really I really love it yeah I yeah, I guess right. that leads to the obvious question then, which is who do you think's done it? Who who has done yes. it? Yes, it's time to force 
this is something I think we're going to try and do every time is force, force our guests to make very people. bold yeah. and specific <laughs> guesses. I, I want to hear Matt's crazy okay. fucking chocolate yeah. crit shit. Yes, me too. Okay, my chocolate my chocolate is that it was Charles and that Charles is not actually forsworn Ooh. somehow. Ooh. <laughs> That's a con. Yeah, have we ever right. seen Charles tell an explicit lie? Like, has anyone ever said to See? Charles, you don't know. hey, Charles, tell me your name isn't Charles or something, just to be like, yeah. confirm that you're lying. Like, and that's the thing is I haven't, I haven't done a reread to like look at every mm. single thing Charles says, but he seems to, I mean, most of the time he doesn't have any reason to lie. So he's just telling them things that about, about his life and, and, and whatever. But like, does he ever say certain sequences of words that... Like he seems to just kind of go along with things, and and you know maybe the other maybe the others um, think that he's forsworn, and then and so they're not lying when they say that he's forsworn, and then he just kind of goes along with it. See, again, you could probably find just like, oh no, he he definitely uh, says a lie right here, sure. you know. But I like the idea that it was Charles and that he's not forsworn, and that this is all his kind. The the twist of the one person who's confirmed to be able to lie actually not being <laughs> able to lie would be pretty yes, fucking actually hilarious. actually so good, yeah. And then the reveal, then he just can be like, actually, I'm not forsworn, and all of you have lied, and so, like, fuck you all, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting uh-huh. because I think one of the, the, the most interesting things about his character to me is we're kind of told how bad being forsworn is, and like he's not doing great but mm. i mean he's not getting eaten by small children so mm. you know in this <laughs> universe that seems to be pretty good so yeah interesting okay scott your your turn i can't like i can't one up that i was every time someone asked first. Me, every time someone asked me a murder mystery question my answer is that it's um it's uh murder on the orient express that's my answer which is can I spoil Murder on the Orient Express? I guess I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> sure. in case. I mean, whatever. It's a very Go old story. The, the Murder on the Orient Express is a whodunit in which the answer to who did it is literally everyone because they all team up and did it together. Um, and so that's my answer. It was all of them. All of them. Mm. It was the whole town. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's certainly interesting because like if you ask them questions like, are you responsible for for the murder? Then they could say like no more yeah. than anyone else. <laughs> and they'd be telling the truth. I think That's there's a lot good. of fun wiggle room you could do in the no lying thing if it's like it was like mm-hmm. a like a group decision. <laughs> yeah, yeah, conspiracy. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 okay. So you know, right underneath my it was Charles theory, I would say there's probably some kind of conspiracy where it's not just one mm. other that, that's mm-hmm. responsible. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so I actually kind of agree yeah, with yeah, you. Yeah, I, I agree that it can't just be, oh, it was Miss or, oh, it was Edith. All right, you know, wash your hands. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like cherry pop, just all by herself. <laughs> yeah, it was cherry pop. <laughs> oh, never yeah. trusted that cup. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, we'll um, I'll, I'll actually add those to our to our spreadsheet. Oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> no, what's happening? Uh, I guess we'll we'll do a bit of uh, explicit packed spoilers comparison stuff here well oh yeah before we before we do that we should probably like you know let matt and scott plug their stuff before some people leave yeah true true cool so um sure <laughs> scott and matt thanks for coming on of course this was fun i, I love yeah. casually talking about wild bow books and not like super serious like there's an expectation that i'm brilliant talking about wild bow books yeah yeah this is awesome I, I appreciate the opportunity yeah, to come on here because um uh, uh I, I don't know it's just it's very 
it's it's always fun keeping up with a wild o story, and you always want to talk about it. And um, and I I, I got Yay. to, mm-hmm. so I'm happy now. <laughs> you scratched that itch. Yes. Um, if people want more uh, of Scott and Matt, you can check out the podcast Kingslingers, which is a deep dive into Stephen King, uh, Stephen King's The Dark Tower series specifically. Um, and if you want more discussion of twists and mysteries, they did a, a, a series of uh, discussions of M. Night Shyamalan movies on the Doofcast. So I guess that has more discussion on the nature of twists and mysteries. Yeah. The biggest mystery of all. How is Avatar The Last Airbender so bad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, yeah that was a twist yeah and, and also if you know if if you somehow haven't listened to we've got worm and we've got ward mm. check them out they're pretty good yeah they're good stuff. i very much enjoyed them thank you yep. they're very thank long this hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of hours <laughs> um all right uh yeah and you can obviously check out doofmedia.com for more details on all the podcasts on the doof media network and now, those of you who are stuck around during that housekeeping bit, we can talk about some comparisons with Pact. Yes, um, so this will be the Pact spoiler section. So if you have not read Pact, now is the time to, you know, stop the episode and mark it as read yep. or listened. Um, and to dive right into the spoilers, one person who definitely hasn't read Pact is Verona, because she's going down a, a heck of a bad <laughs> path by wanting to be another. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. I think my live raid for that bit was just when she said, I don't want to be human anymore. I was like, oh, God, not again. Not again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we learned our lesson here. That's an interesting discussion to me because I think if I'm trying to get in the head of someone who hasn't read a story in this universe before, I think there's like a part of maybe like a, a transhumanist person that would look at that and go like, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, that'd be like human. But like, mm. I think all of us knowing what what being another entails and like what what that means um, are like, oh god, no, there's no way this is good. This is not a good decision. Don't do this. Yeah, I think the the, the hungry choir's prize is a perfect example of that to me because it's like, oh, you don't have to eat. And if you weren't familiar with Pact, you'd probably be like, oh, that sounds sweet. Whereas like, I just remember when Blake was in the abyss, there was this whole premise of you know, chucking away bits of your humanity mm-hmm. was actually like really bad for you. So I read that and in my other verse head, it was like, oh, that's a terrible prize. But when you separate yourself from someone who's read Pact, you're like, I can see why people would find that very alluring. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. That The the um, the Hungry Choir immediately had a, a abyss flavor to me as soon as, as soon as they revealed that because I was like, oh, okay. It, it lets you sacrifice a piece of yourself and it focuses on people who probably already have some lack of connection to the world. Um, I do wonder how, how much of a, you know, how much the abyss is going to feature in the story because like uh, we have, we have a lot of people who are mm. lost. We talked a lot about the idea of people who are lost and have, have either few connections or problems with their connections such that they kind of just want to sever all of their connections. Uh, I think, you know, we have these three friends who, you know, maybe being a bit optimistic will, will help keep each other from falling into the sure. literal mm. abyss. Um, uh, but, but it, it does like immediately with this first arc, I was like, are we going to have some abyss stuff in this story? Just cause the, just cause of the themes. I, I think, I think we have to, I mean, maybe not. I don't know. Like I, I, it feel it feels too tempting to not go there. You know, I think that's one of the, I think Matt, you've said before that that's like your favorite, your favorite part of Pact is the abyss stuff and just the mm-hmm. concept of it, the idea yeah. of this place. Um, it just seems like it's like. I mean, I, I go kind of Buffy with it where I'm like, okay, here we have a story and there's all these supernatural elements, but the core of the story is these three 
teenage girls and i'm wondering the ways in which we could explore teenage girl friendship um mm. in some of the hardest some of the weirdest times in someone's life um and how how we can explore that metaphorically through the pact verse and the abyss just seems like this really interesting avenue to explore in that regard because i mean what what's going to happen when these these girls start fighting if they if the if there's conflict between them if there's conflict within the trio yep. how easy will it be to slip into that you know to just feel like this is my only hold on to something and i've lost it and i don't know like there's so many opportunities there yeah, yeah i think mm -hmm. wabo himself has actually said that the abyss was his favorite part of the of the pact verse that he came up with in our interview with him so sweet um it's definitely on the cards for it to come back i think yeah i think we'll see it when you know the abyss in pact was kind of depended on the fact that it, that was an unstable situation right the abyss is this kind of underworld that unstable situations threaten to fall into um mm -hmm. and so so far in this story we have what is more or less a stable situation of the others kind of having this union i guess <laughs> ruling over kennet but i'm sure that as we we see the cracks form in that we'll also see the very literal cracks of the abyss <laughs> um come come into the story mm -hmm. as well i like that i like that yeah because certain certain things about Kennet remind me of Jacob's Bell. Oh yeah, for sure. It's like this this isolated, creepy town with secrets, and you know, there's what what I was gonna say a disproportionately high amount of others, but I'm like actually I have no idea how many others are, are mm. normal. <laughs> um, seems like a lot of others for a really small town, but I don't know if that's uh, I don't know. Um, so yeah, I mean, the idea that the abyss is hungry for this place is mm -hmm. plausible to me. Yeah. Uh, to your point, I yeah, definitely that's... think there's so much overlap with how the Hungry Choir was operating and the Abyss as well. Like, maybe that is mm -hmm. something. Maybe there will be a more specific tie between the Abyss and the Hungry Choir because it was it was mm -hmm. doing a lot of the same stuff, I agree. Mm -hmm. um, even the way it kind mm -hmm. of seems to open up its own pocket dimension to, to torture people in was kind of abyssal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, the mm -hmm. fact that so, it erases yeah. people from... Uh... You know, or has yep. this thing of like, you know, any injuries you sustain are then like erased, or you know, have this weird like time warping, which yeah. also feels very abyssal. Yeah, it's yeah. um, it's it, it definitely reminded me of what happened to Blake after he got hit by Ur. Mm. Absolutely. So maybe yeah. Gabe's fine and he's just in the abyss. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> yeah, he's fine. He's fine yeah, I mean, in the abyss. <laughs> Sure, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it it is funny to me because Wildbo did say at some point that like this is supposed to have a lighter tone, yeah. and I'm like, all right, okay, we got the kid eaten by by children in the first arc, <laughs> so I mean, may, and like so, I was just like, okay, well, maybe he is alive, maybe he is recoverable mm. in some sense. I mean, my understanding of the Pact Verse is that mm. nothing is recoverable yeah, totally. once you've lost it. But, but, I think that, but usually, that, would be that usually applies more to demons than anything else. I, I, true, I would actually true. argue the opposite. I think from what I've seen of the pack verse, just about anything's possible. Mm. Okay, okay. Well, then that then I'll hold on to my little glimmer of chocolatey <laughs> hope. Um, the idea of this being a lighter story is one that's interesting to me as well because I think, like, even with One Dot Z, I do think this story so far has felt lighter than Pact, and I think that is just because. The fact that we have three protagonists means that our protagonists have, at least to some extent, some support network, right? Sure, Whereas sure. for Blake, at least for the first few arcs, he had literally nothing, right? Like, he was yeah. literally mm. just by himself with someone in the mirror kind of pointing out his flaws all the time, I guess. Yeah, well, he had Rose, who was specifically built to fight him. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, great uh, support. So, 
um yeah i I mean i I think that's been the most fun part of pale to me in comparison to pact is just getting to watch the kenneteers use the magic for like more benign shit like you know using the site in pe is just something blake never got a chance to do (laughs) yeah yeah um and it has been a lot more fun to kind of give these three a bit more room to breathe so that we can just kind of see how magic does into someone normal's life whereas before we only ever got touches of that in like interludes with with people like you know the like alistair behame or something yeah that's one thing Mm -hmm. that like i mean i love i loved pact but i think i talked to you guys about this before but this idea that like the book starts and you learn about this world and the magic systems and there's very much this expectation or there was in my mind that okay now we're gonna have like the learning about the implement chapter (laughs) and now we're gonna have the learning about the domain chapter and and like none of that happens the the story just gets whipped up into into like conflict after conflict after conflict yeah. very quickly that we really just never have this hey fun with magic fun with runes time like we just there was just never that that kind of space in the story for that and i don't think that makes a story bad but it is cool to see this book kind of return to those things and say okay we do have a little breath to do that we do have yeah. just this, yeah. this just seeing seeing the teenage fun with magic um and we know that there's going to be consequences for this we know that it's not going to be fun but we get to see it um or or maybe while mm-hmm. though when he said a lighter a lighter story he was doing that pact verse thing where he was just like being literal and he said well it's named pale so it's li- it's mm. lighter it's pale yeah. it's paler <laughs> And he just, and he just, yeah, like a corpse drained of its blood. Verona <laughs> just used a light rune, so like check, we didn't have any light yeah. runes used in, in Pact, yeah. so it's lighter. It's uh-huh. technically lighter. Maybe, maybe yeah. when you add up the number of uh, daytime chapters versus nighttime chapters, <laughs> it will. There well, will I mean, be more. one entire, yeah, one entire <laughs> arc in Pact was an e- a literal endless night, so it, I guess it will be lighter. <laughs> Although Pack did have that god of light as well, so that balanced it out. I yeah, think. true. Oh, that was in it for a chapter. Though. Maybe that character's um, going to come back in Pale. There we go. God of light. Yeah. yeah, you know, if if I had to have like a like a a positive interpretation of where the story is going to go and be and actually be positive, I would say that it has to hinge on the fact that these girls are friends, and while they will have their conflict, mm-hmm. they will also uh, they will also be able to be uh, supportive to each other. Um, hmm. you know, in the midst of that, because, you know, like it's been pointed out, Blake is, the, Blake was simultaneously like, quote unquote, good at the practice while also like burning himself up gradually yeah. until there was nothing left. And that sort of reminds me of Verona where she's like, quote unquote, a natural. And it's like, oh, well, what I, what we know about naturals is that they tend to just like flare out rapidly. Yeah. Um, but maybe Verona having the the other two being a kind of anchor will will give some balance to this yeah, trio. I, I love that because like we that. we explicitly had was it I think it was was it one point eight I'm not sure which chapter it was but there was a chapter where I think it was one point eight where Lucy explicitly says to Verona Hey I'm worried about you right and that's I mean that happened mm-hmm. in one point three when they were in the car and we had the whole chocolate thing mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, like there have been explicit <laughs> moments of. Lucy specifically saying to Verona, hey, I'm worried about you. Like, that's something that we didn't get in Pact until, what, arc 11, 12, something like that. And by then it was much too late. 
Yeah. I mean, I mean there were people telling Blake they were worried about him, but he didn't stop to well, listen. Well, no, people told Blake, hey, you're going to die by the end of the day. They didn't say, I'm worried about you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm concerned for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, fair. I, I think, yeah, I mean, if I can revise something I said a little earlier in the show that, like, maybe this is a story of, like, the ways in which, like, we're relying on these young kids with these these mm. teenage friendships and the way in the, which those friendships can can uh can be damaging to each other or they can hurt each other through them i think a much lighter more optimistic thing is like the strength of a young yeah yeah of a young teenage friendship like the the, the power of that connection specifically could be mm. something that this book is really going to dive into um that that how powerful these these friendships that you have at, at some of the most formative moments of your life um to see you through some of the most difficult and and weird changes you go through um as you b- start to move towards adulthood i think i think that could be a very interesting angle to look at this whole thing from mm. i like that yeah yeah it reminds me of the secret place except that has a lot of negative connotations yes, yes, too yes. So. <laughs> mm. That, that was a, a ton of French novel. Um, just uh, one of her best. Yeah. You sh- y'all should read that. We did a yeah. book club on it. Wonderful. Um, what else? What are the? Do we have any other packed spoiler related thoughts, or just any thoughts? I guess on uh, on <laughs> this story so far. I love goblins. Yeah, they're, yes. they're great, aren't they? <laughs> I'm so glad we have goblins again as central important characters to this story because uh-huh. it would just feel so empty without them. Yeah. Yeah. I was so glad to see Turd Swallow again, uh, or Turd well, Swallow I don't as know he's now known. T- yeah, I mean it is t- uh, Turd Swallow <laughs> for sure. Yeah, he, he, like, he was he was cut by the barber, and now he's now he's Toad Swallow. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I, I want to revise my prediction to be everyone in town but the goblins did it because but I just refuse. They just can't. Yeah, believe. yeah. Uh-huh. Cherry Pop would never murder somebody. <laughs> no, no, it can't. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the biggest moment of like fanboy squee was when uh louise is running through the night and like in the moonlight you can sort of she can sort of see that there are creatures following her and i was like yes like she is exactly the person the goblins would be fucking with mm-hmm. and, and like dra- dragging her down even worse and now they're like stalking her through the night and i was like that's that's cool yeah. and of course wild blood doesn't let you know those are the goblins but any packed reader would Wait, recognize you. that yeah, yeah of I course think- yeah. Elliot, that gets us back to, I think, something you wanted to talk about, which was kind of the ways in which Pale introduces the world um, that mm. is are, are interesting to packed readers um, on top of being really interesting to new people, right? I think I think there's some, yeah. some pack spoilers you wanted to dive into with this stuff. I mean, just like a an easy example is like the awakening ritual mm-hmm. because w- we saw a bunch of awakening rituals in Pact and they're all individual mm-hmm. and... So, like, I thought it was so clever of Wabo. He immediately hits us in Pale. And I'm sort of like, okay, the Awakening Ritual, I'm ready for this. I know what's about to happen. And it was just, on almost every level, completely unlike the Awakening Rituals we saw in Pact. Yeah. Uh, there, were th- there were three of them. Um, with the other ones, there was that... Um, the others didn't explicitly come and take things in that. There was this more indirect, like, the spirits ate it and approved of things. Whereas in this one, the others individually came in and exited through these things like it was completely different while at the same time being the same and that was such a fantastic way to juggle um like like you know introducing new readers and old readers mm-hmm. you know keeping keeping the old readers engaged yeah. i think this this balance between um you know using dramatic irony in fun ways to 
uh, or at least dramatic irony for only a subset of your readers to keep them engaged and like, ah, I, I, that is a goblin. He's not saying that's a goblin, but I, the reader, know that's a goblin, while also introducing new elements to something you thought you did understand. I think the mix of those two things is what really keeps it engaging for me a packed reader that even even we were diving into some really like nitty-gritty world building of stuff that i already knew for every line of something that i read and i was like oh i knew that part already there was a line where i was like oh i didn't know that that's interesting um and i think maybe that has to do with the fact that blake just like i don't know he never like felt like like he really wanted to learn any of this stuff he's like he's like rose is like you really should read this book and he's like "Eh, books yeah yeah summarize it for me (laughs) yeah I think it's a testament to the world as well. Like this isn't a strictly defined world. Mm -hmm. Like the rules can kind of change and be bent. So there is so much more flexibility for Wildbow to throw new curveballs at us to to stuff we already knew because that's just how this world works. Yeah, it's it's this really interesting combination of a very strict, like formal system that has a lot of wiggle room, which is so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. I, I feel like I could kind of go on making the Blake comparisons, um, but, you know, j- just like how, you know, he he would just like cut himself open and use his own blood for power. Like, like, like that, that was like the first that was like the first yeah. trick anyone even taught him. Yeah. And it's like and, and this is and that's like not even on the list of things that these girls would want to do. I yeah, think. they're like yeah. better not use too much of the bullets power. And Blake is like, yeah. slice myself open and take off. The- <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, but they just have access to more power as well. Like True. Blake needed to do it to power basic runes. These three are already kind of tapped into the collective power of the town. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a bit of status as the official practitioners of the town. Yeah. So they're not as desperate for every scrap of power as well, which is a, a huge part of what's leading to them just being able to do fun experiments. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, just because they're in a better position than Blake ever was. Who, who's mm-hmm. the first True. of the three that's going to slice themselves open and use use their blood oh, for power? Totally, Verona. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, nah, I'm I'm putting my money on Lucy. Ooh, okay. Oh, okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, I want to take this to a slightly more shallow level for a moment because I was introducing <laughs> a friend of mine to Pale who had read Pact. And the first question they asked me were, oh, so do any of the characters come back? And I had a, I sat down and I had to think about that question of like, are there any characters where I think it would be like, f- like it would feel justified for these characters to come up in this story? And actually, even though Kennett is literally another small town in, in, uh, in Canada, I can't think of a character that I feel like would fit into the world of this story, except maybe Jeremy Meath, who's got the whole like, you know, crime and punishment kind of vibe to him. Mm. Um, but beyond that, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking, like, are there any characters that we want to see return, or do we feel like it should just be it's completely mm-hmm. its own thing? Um, I, I feel like it would be sort of uh, very amusing if Maggie Holt was in it, because mm. it's this pact is the Maggie Holt stories. <laughs> or, 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 you know, or, I mean, yeah, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but um, I don't know how... I mean, I'm sure it could be made to work, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, 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 like, we're not. I, I don't anticipate like, like a goblin, uh, blood and fire thing happening in this story. So, um, yeah. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to see Buttsack too, obviously. <laughs> so. Well, I mean, Toad Toad Swallow does know Mag, uh, Mags, so could be. I, I'm not really like jonesing for more mm. characters. Like, I, I, I don't like the second you asked me that question, I was just like are there any of these characters in that story that was just like, man, I really need to see more of them. I really need to see right away how they're doing. And I'm like, I mean, 
it'd be nice to check in with some of them, but like, I don't, I don't feel that pull in, in, so I, I would kind of prefer it if it's just stays like separate that its own, its own kind of mini story within this universe that we don't really need to mix and match a lot. Mm. I, I agree with Scott. Like, I think it would be such a tricky line to walk in a story that's been set up as a, not a sequel to yeah. bring a character who a lot of us already know into it. Like, I just think that would be very tricky to do in a way that worked and you know yeah we're not doing ward spoilers so i won't bring up a character who you know a lot of people wanted to come back in in ward um but like i see it as as similar to that in some ways and we do have turd swallow so i think like a little goblin through line between poke is is nice and indirect yeah um like i think that's probably enough for me yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i i think that i think the the easiest way to do it is that kind of cameo like almost indirect perform like indirect uh appearance that doesn't like it's an easter egg for people that know about it but it's you don't no one loses anything without knowing about it and i mean i'm sure you could reintroduce a character and then define them in this book in a way that all the new readers perfectly understand who they are and it works fine i just don't see wildbo doing that um I'm like mm, Matt said. I'm yeah. sure if he did, it'd, it'd be fine and would work and be interesting. But I just don't see it happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, ca- a cameo is an interesting idea. Like if they ended up in the abyss and it was some, like you know, like that witch, that scary looking blonde girl. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, if it was a scary looking blonde girl who got them out, you'd be like, oh, mm-hmm. is that mm-hmm. Rose? Like, yeah. you know, and, and then you know, if she's only in it for ten seconds, yeah. Like mm-hmm. you know, that that would sort of be the only way I could see something like that working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was I was concerned when Verona picked a pair of scissors as her um, <laughs> symbol. That, that, that it's we an origin story. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Like, I, again, yeah, that's kind of where I landed on it. Like, I can't think of a character that I, I feel like it would be narratively justified for them to show up in this. I don't know. Because I'd forgotten she picked the scissors as her personal <laughs> item. That's like because she wants to chop away. Some of her humanity now. Like, yeah. God, <laughs> yeah. I love this, these books. Yeah. Yeah. It's a terrifying symbol to anyone who's read Pact. You're like immediately like, oh, no. no. Yeah. Yeah. God. Um, yeah. I, I don't think I need to see any. Uh, this isn't This isn't like, um, this is not like board where you're like, oh, um, this is like, it's actually, it's actually going to be relevant to the plot where all of these other characters are now. Yeah. This is a different town. I literally don't know off the top of my head whether this takes place before or after Pact, actually. I think they're both set when they were written. Like, I think okay. Pact was set in 2013, 14. Mm. Makes sense. And, um, and this is set in about 2020. Yeah, everybody seems to have about the right kind of smartphones. So <laughs> Yeah, smartphones is just uh, yeah. how you can measure time nowadays. <laughs> yeah. What model yeah. of phone does everyone have? Yeah, what capabilities do their pocket computers have? It's got it's yeah. got to be an alt universe twenty twenty though, because it's not this hellhole we're living through. Mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. yeah, which one's worse? <laughs> yeah, you you can no longer use the real world as a setting for fictional stories. <laughs> <laughs> it's too it's too unrealistic. That's great. <sighs> okay. This is this is a real aside, but they've just restarted Big Brother in Australia after not having it for like seven years, and I only found out about it last week, and I was just sitting there, and I was like. What a time to relaunch a show where the premise is twenty people are stuck in a house they can't leave. <laughs> like, what are you thinking? Uh, that, that's, that's terrible. Nobody uh, needs that in their life right no, now. Not at all. It's, it's the only show that we can make now. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God. Um, any other thoughts that we have? 
Any other any other thoughts on this story so far? Gosh, I'm so excited to see where it goes. Me too. Mm-hmm. Me too. I'm I'm most excited for the fairy. I like I, that's. Oh, yeah. I, I I hope we get to the fairy soon because. again they're another one like what little we've learned about the two of them so far they seem like you know very unique like compared to like Pordrig and the other ones that we met in pact i am i'm convinced wabo is going to be doing something very different with the fairy and i can't Mm. wait to see what it is are we going to find out that Pordrig and his group were just the worst and fairies are actually nice and chill (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's I what a twist! So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I refuse to believe that. Yeah, no, there's no way. Fair enough. Um, all right, cool. Well, I guess that's that then. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, yeah, check out Kingslingers or just other Doof shows if people want more of Scott and Matt. Um, and that's that. I guess. See you yeah, next yeah, time. Yeah. I I just want to say, like, I've you guys are doing a really great job, and I it's it's been really fun following along with you. I've never gotten to do this with a wild bow story before because um, I was perpetually behind on Pact, and I couldn't I didn't listen to my own show because it's weird. But um, so I, I think you both are doing great, and it's really really fun kind of experiencing this story through you. So great work, we love it. Yes, right. well thanks 100%. for coming on. Thank you. I mean, we are you know just palely reflecting the, the <laughs> ground that you trod. Um, <laughs> And it's, uh, it, it's, you know, it was a blast listening to your show and I'm, I'm glad you're getting a bit of the same out of ours. Thanks. All right. Well, stay tuned for more regular episodes of Pale Reflections on this very feed coming up soon. The end, I guess. <laughs> I told you we needed to write down an intro and an outro, we didn't did I? We did the outro already. We did the outro before. Yeah, okay. Okay. Okay.